Hello everybody. This is the first sermon in a new series looking at the book of Philippians. The series is called How to Follow Christ in a Challenging World. Our first sermon looks at the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 1 and the encouragement is for us to value our prayer partners. Raymond Edmund was dying of typhus fever at the age of 25 in the jungles of Ecuador. His doctor, a specialist in tropical diseases, had advised Raymond's wife to start preparing his funeral. Men were already making his coffin. Edith was busy dyeing her wedding dress black. But the same day, 3,000 miles north of Ecuador in Massachusetts, Raymond's uncle Joe became deeply and inexplicably troubled. He knew nothing of his nephew's actual predicament, but couldn't shake the sense that he was in grave danger. Joe, who was attending a conference at the time, felt so stirred that he persuaded the conference's 200 delegates to join him in urgent intercession for Raymond. The conference rose up and prayed so fervently that years later, many of those present recalled the intensity. Consumed with a sense of imminent danger, they fasted lunch and continued interceding until the middle of the afternoon, at which point a great peace settled upon them. Somehow they knew that their prayers had been heard. Meanwhile, in Ecuador, Raymond had fallen unconscious and in his comatose state became aware of a loving presence slowly entering the room, rising from the ground to the level of his bed and eventually filling the building. I experienced a sweet sense of the love of God in Christ, such as I'd never known before in all the years of my life, he recalled. It is sufficient to say that I had no fear of dying. Raymond felt himself ascending with great joy until a quiet voice told him to return. To the amazement of those preparing his funeral, Raymond regained consciousness and was completely healed. In later life, Raymond Edmund would become president of a Bible college. But we know of him and his story because he went on to be the mentor of the great evangelist Billy Graham. Oh, what fruit came from the prayers of Raymond's Uncle Joe and those conference delegates. But I don't have to retreat to the annals of church history to give examples of the power of prayer. We have experienced it here over the last few months. We prayed for John when he was very unwell. He has now returned from hospital. We prayed for Lauren when she was in a hospice, now she's being treated again. We prayed for Alison and Peter as their planning application ground to a halt, now they're making progress. We prayed for Izzy to get a university offer, not only did she get one, but it was unconditional. We prayed for Kayla to have chance to speak to her mum. After five years of no contact, she spoke to her the very next day. Prayer really does work. We cannot always explain why or how, but God really does use our prayers to go to work in his world. As Archbishop William Temple once said, When I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. 
I think nearly all of us listening to this would agree with that statement and have a testimony of our own to back it up. I don't know about you, but it's because of my experience of prayer working that when I know others are praying for me, I have a deep sense of comfort and peace. It's so encouraging to know that others are holding you up before the Lord. In our reading today, we're going to be encouraged to do this for each other, to become prayer partners for one another. Our passage today marks the beginning of a new series looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. Whenever we read one of the letters in the New Testament, it's helpful to know the context behind them. We shall pick bits of this up as we go on through the series, but as we start, it's helpful to know what prompted Paul to begin writing in the first place. Paul is in prison. He's been arrested for his faith, particularly the content of his preaching in public places. His message is deemed to be a threat to the status quo and the vested interests of Jews, Romans and pagans alike. But in reality, all he was doing is preaching the gospel of Christ. In the ancient world, food was not given to prisoners. If a prisoner was to survive, they depended upon friends helping them. Paul was not allowed to continue his tent making in prison, so he really was reliant on his outside contacts. Fortunately, When the Philippians had heard of Paul's predicament, they had been moved to come to his aid. That small church had taken up a collection to raise money. They had then entrusted one of their members to set out on the dangerous journey to bring it to Paul. Consequently, when Paul received this gift, he was overwhelmed with gratitude. He was greatly touched by the love and esteem so practically demonstrated by his Philippian friends. So he set about writing a heartfelt thank you letter. Paul's letter to the Philippians is full of joy and demonstrates the deep relationship that there is between brothers and sisters in Christ. Even when they're separated by many miles and may not have known each other very long. When you read the letter through, you cannot help but be encouraged by it. But alongside his thankfulness, Paul also takes the opportunity, from afar, to impart what help and advice he can to the new believers. His imprisonment has proved once more that these were challenging days to be a follower of Jesus, and he knew that the church in Philippi would be feeling the same pressure. So with great love and affection, Paul seeks to share the wisdom he has learnt. This is why I have chosen this letter for us to read while we still journey through lockdown and as Christians in the West face increasing pressure from the secular world. The title of our series for the next few weeks is going to be How to Follow Christ in a Challenging World. And the advice we are going to receive from the first 11 verses of chapter 1 is that we are to value partners in prayer. The letter begins with Paul communicating his deep appreciation of the Philippians. He's so grateful for their offering and wants them to know how much it means to him. The opening sentences are full of love and and demonstrate a profound relationship. As Paul received that gift, his mind must have been taken back to his experiences in Philippi. They're recorded for us in Acts 16. Paul had been called to go to Philippi by God in a dream. 
when he got there, he and his travelling companions met with a group of women who had gathered by the river on the Sabbath to pray. One of them, Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth, came to faith, and she and her household were baptised. That was the birth of the church in the city. It began in Lydia's home. As Paul reminisces, it's clear to him that this was a very good start. A community of passionate believers had taken root. In verse 1 of his letter, he describes them as God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. It is a wonderfully simple yet profound definition of a church. The Philippians have been made holy by Jesus. In other words, they've come to faith in him as their Lord and Saviour. They've been forgiven through his cross and resurrection. They have been filled by the Spirit and made righteous in the Father's sight. Paul loves this phrase, in Christ. It describes the position that Christians take up. When the father looks across at his son seated on the throne next to him, he sees the Philippians. When he looks down at the Philippians, he sees his son. Believers are covered by Christ, clothed by Christ, united to Christ. Nothing can separate us from him or his love. He died our death, we live his life. This is the wonder of our salvation, the depth of God's grace that the Father should send his Son to rescue us. And this is all enabled solely by faith, a faith which in the Philippians case Paul knows is absolutely real because it has been demonstrated in practical ways. As Paul reflects, he rejoices on how after coming to believe in Jesus, the Philippians partnered with him in the work of the gospel. They played their part in defending and proclaiming the good news in the city. The Philippians also demonstrated their faith in the way they sacrificially took up their offering for him. Even though Paul had moved on from them, they remained so grateful to him for him bringing the gospel to them that they felt compelled to act. The Bible is very clear. True faith is always demonstrated by works and a change of character. In the Philippians case, Paul had no doubt. They were true believers, God's holy people. God had begun a good work in them. They shared in God's grace alongside him. What pride Paul took in this young church. As Paul dwelt on these things, however and no doubt kept turning over their offering in his hands, his emotions began to change a little. In verse 8, he speaks of his longing to see them. You get the sense that as Paul remembers their love for him, he feels the confines of his imprisonment all the more. He's rudely separated from his brothers and sisters, and it hurts. Consequently, Paul turns from dwelling on the past and begins to look forward. Now being in prison means Paul's immediate future is very uncertain. A trial is to come and a possible death sentence hangs over his head. As Paul lies in chains he really does not know what the outcome will be, whether he will live or die. But because of the reality of the Philippians faith Paul is assured that come what may he will see his friends again for eternal glory awaits. In verse 6, Paul speaks of the day of Christ Jesus. 
the day that the risen Lord will return to earth and put all things right. Evil will be dealt with, the righteous will be vindicated, heaven and earth will join, all will be at peace. From that moment on, all God's people will be raised and live together with their saviour. Paul will see the Philippians there, even if he does not see them before. I love the way Paul writes about this. He does not focus on his own longings. He seeks to encourage his readers. He says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. The Philippians were made holy by the blood of Christ when they came to faith. They were united to him, but God has not finished with them yet. With his spirit alive in their hearts, he is now at work moulding and shaping them. This work will continue until the day they meet Jesus, either in death or on his return. And when they do, astonishingly, they will find that they will have been made like him. This is true for all Christians. It is true for us today. We are being perfected. We are being made like Jesus day by day. It is the mystery of the atonement. We are at the same time holy in God's sight and being made holy. We can be assured that God always finishes what he starts. One day we will take our place alongside Paul and those Philippian believers from 2,000 years ago. We will gather with all God's holy people from down through the ages and right across the world. We will live forevermore in God's new creation of peace and harmony. We will live with God. What a glorious future awaits us. As Paul languished in prison, greatly missing his friends, thinking on this future brought delight to his heart. Even in the darkness, it filled him with joy. As we struggle, we should take time to remember this hope and allow it to bring light and life to us as well. So Paul has reminisced about the past, his ministry in Philippi and how the church began. Because of the practical nature of the Philippians' faith, he is sure that it was a good start. They are true believers, made holy by God's grace. Through his longing to see them once more, Paul has then turned to the future and recognised that even if his current captivity is to be the end of him, he will see his friends once more. On the day of Christ's return, they will meet up in glory when they will all stand as holy in the presence of God. But now, as he starts to bring his opening greetings to a close, Paul turns to the present. The challenging present. Paul does not know how long he has left, so he's going to take this precious opportunity to bolster the church and encourage them to keep going. In many ways, the early church was under attack. We can see the severity of the situation by the fact that Paul himself was in prison. Philippi was also in a fairly vulnerable situation. It was the first church in Europe. The believers were living in a city that was a very proud colony of Rome. Consequently, on a daily basis, these young Christians would have come against intimidation and persecution. They would have been surrounded by pagan gods, emperor worship and increasing levels of heretical teachers. And we know that in the face of all this pressure, the church was at times in danger of cracking. Areas of disunity were creeping in. 
Paul has celebrated the Philippians as God's holy people, but he was under no illusion. It was a daily fight for them to remain holy in this environment. The temptation to compromise or abandon the faith for an easier life was huge. With this great concern, Paul wants the Philippians to know what it is that he prays for them on a daily basis. Even in prison, he is constantly holding them up before the Lord. It's the one thing he can do. They may have taken his freedom, but his captors cannot take away his connection to the Lord. Day by day, Paul urges the Lord to help his people. And it's fascinating what he prays for in verses 9 to 11. Three things Paul pleads on behalf of his Philippian friends. First, he prays for knowledge that the Philippians may grow in knowledge of God. This is not just a collection of facts about God, not that type of dusty academic knowledge at all. Paul is talking about the way you know someone you're in a relationship with, the way I know my wife, or some of you know your children. Paul wants the Philippians to have a deeper insight into God's character and ways. That way, That first flush of enthusiasm that comes at conversion won't just fizzle out under the pressure of their circumstances. Instead, it will grow into a deep commitment. Second, Paul prays for discernment. He longs for the Philippians to become wise. He wants them to recognise the dangers and temptations around them for what they are. That way, they're less likely to fall for them. Living in Roman society, he wants them to recognise good and evil amongst all the various shades of grey. As they face difficult decisions on how to behave and how to respond to their culture and society, he wants them to have consciences that are tuned in to God. Otherwise, they're going to really struggle to make good choices. And of course, our consciences grow as we learn more about God. Finally, Paul prays that the Philippians will have the courage to act on the wisdom God gives them. He prays that they may remain pure and blameless. He prays that fruit will grow in their lives. Fruit that brings praise to God. Fruit that brings others in the city to know God for themselves. Can you see that all of what Paul prays for here can be described by one word? Growth. He prays that the Philippians will grow up in their faith. And with the challenges that lay about them, this process needs to happen fast. Still today, growth happens in the same three steps. Learning more about God and his word. Allowing the spirit to tune our conscience into God's ways and heart for us. Then having the courage to act accordingly, no matter what pressure comes to the contrary. As we live in a challenging present, we all need to grow in this way two. And it's on this note that I want us to finish. The urgency of this is what I want us to take away. Paul has written to the Philippians words of great encouragement. God has made them holy. They've had a good start. God will make them holy. A glorious future awaits them. But in the challenging present, they have a part to play. They have to try and remain living holy lives. And with the pressures they face, that holiness will only be maintained through work. 
Obedience and discipline will be required if they are to continue as God's holy people, set apart for him amid the vices of the city. But wonderfully they do not meet this challenge alone. Paul is given his all to pray for them. They have partnered with him in sending a gift. Now he has partnered with them in prayer. He is fighting the battle alongside them from his prison cell. I wanted to see that we're in the same position as the Philippians. It's hard to be a Christian today. As this pandemic continues, as the church increasingly empties in the West, it's very easy to become discouraged. It is easy to start to compromise our faith as the government make rules that go against it. It's easy to slip away as TV, books, websites and magazines get filled with unhealthy influences. We too need help to remain living a holy life amongst our challenging world. We too need people to pray for us and to do so with joy and determination. In this passage, Paul asks God to give his grace and peace to the Philippians in verse 2. And he asks God to help them grow in verses 9 to 11. I cannot think of three better things for us to be praying for our brothers and sisters within the church. Grace, peace and growth. May we become prayer partners for one another. May our relationships with one another deepen until they become like Paul's. Perhaps this week you would like to invite someone to become your prayer partner. You pray for them, they pray for you. Perhaps you could swap prayer requests on a weekly basis. Or maybe you could become a prayer triplet. Three of you meet up for prayer once a month. Or maybe you can just take the daily prayer guide and pray through that. Each day there is the name given of one of our church members. Pray for them. Pray for God's grace, peace and growth to be known in their lives. You may not feel like you're doing very much, but you will be. Because prayer really works. By becoming prayer partners for one another, we will be helping each other remain holy. We will be encouraging one another to continue following Christ in our challenging world.